Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read this section um, actually from 1 down through verse 16, although we're only going to actually look at a couple of verses today, but we're going to pull some stuff from this broader context just to show kind of the flow of Paul's thought through here. So let's start in um, Ephesians 4 verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been, was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is our head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Well, let's pray. God, we just come to you this morning and want to ask for your help this morning. We ask that some of this reality would become more and more uh, a part of our life, that we would be built up in Christ, that we would go on in this thing of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God, we confess this morning the only way that that is going to happen, the only way is if you come and help us. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to speak to you this morning on this phrase here in verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I just want you to think for a moment the situation that this was spoken into, this exhortation to be diligent to preserve unity. Back in chapter 2, Paul talks about this incredible thing that has happened in Christ. This group of people over here called the Jews 
and this group of people over here called the Gentiles have been united into one group and made into one new man. Now here's the thing. Although that salvation had been started, it was not yet complete. And just imagine the situation. I don't know if you could appreciate this because I don't know how much you know about how, how radical the differences are between the Jewish culture and the Gentile culture. But when you talk about bringing these two cultures in together, basically into one room, you are going to have need to bear with one another. Need to bear with one another. I, um, I lived over in Eastern, Eastern Europe for, for a little while, and I got a little, I got a little taste of this. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about the differences in cultural pre- preferences between guys raised in rural Alabama and guys raised in Eastern Europe, but there are some significant differences. Uh, I remember I had been there for, for just a little while, and I don't know, I must have looked you know, stressed out or intense or, or whatever was going on. And the guy that I was staying with said, you know what, you need, you need a break, and I want to take you out, and we're going to have some fun. So I said, all right, you know, that, that's fine. Uh, actually, what happened is, is he, he was, I said, no, no, you know, I've got this study, I need, I've got this stuff that I'm working on, I really don't have time. Finally, he, he got me to acquiesce, and I agreed to do it. And his face just lit up. I mean, he was so excited. He said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to an opera, and then we're going to go ice skating together. <laughs> now, is there, is there anything wrong with going to an opera and ice skating? No. No, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, that's not the first thing that comes to mind when you're talking to a guy from Alabama when you want to talk about relaxing. All right? And as we lived together, there were things like this that came out. And the point is this. We have differences. We have differences. There are cultural differences among Christians. There are personality differences among Christians. There are different expectations. And although salvation has been been started, that salvation is not yet complete. And some of these things are neutral. They're fine. Other of these things are going to fall off as we grow on with the Lord, as we go on with the Lord. But the point of is this: in the meantime, there is need to bear with one another so that we can preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that's what I want to talk to you about a little bit this morning: is this whole thing of unity. Now, what I'm not going to be discussing about unity is unity on a so-called denominational level. You know, this whole idea of church to church and how that unity works. Um, that's a big subject. I'm not going to be discussing it. Uh, a book that I could just not recommend more highly on that subject is The Basis of Christian Unity by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a short little book um, of some sermons that he preached on that subject. It's the best thing I have ever read on how should we think about unity among churches and denominations and and that whole issue. So the basis of Christian unity by Martin Lloyd-Jones, be sure and check that out. What I'm going to be talking about is unity on a more um, focused level. In other words, unity of the Spirit as it relates to us here as a fellowship at Lake Road. And I want to talk about it under three headings. Number one, 
What is the unity? What is the unity of the spirit? What is it? Number two, why must we be diligent to preserve this unity? And number three, how do we preserve this unity? So what is it? Why is it important? And how do we do it? Number one, what is the unity of the spirit? Well, this is not hard to figure out. This is the unity which the Holy Spirit gives. And Paul has already discussed this a little bit back in chapter 2. So if you'll flip back there to chapter 2, let's read a few verses here. Just to kind of get a feel for what God has done and what God is doing in the church and as it relates to unity. Starting in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now in this context, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's broken down this barrier of the dividing wall. But that has implications for everybody. It has implications for the whole church. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So what do we have here? We see clearly in this text that the death of Christ makes us one. And our common experience of the spirit shows we are one. The death of Christ makes us one. And our common experience of the spirit shows that we are one. That's what our text says right here in verse 18. Through Him, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. That is quite a thought. The very same Spirit that ushered Hudson Taylor and George Mueller and other godly people throughout the centuries into the throne room of God, that very same Spirit is the one who brings you there. And more importantly for our discussion this morning, the same Spirit that gives you access to God also gives that same access to God to the believer sitting next to you. You share a common spirit. He goes on to say this in verse uh, 22. He says, In whom, and he's talking about Christ, so we'll just say, In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, here we have another instance of what this unity of the, spirit, uh, of, of the Spirit is. It's not only relates to our common access to the Father, but it also relates to what the Holy Spirit is doing with the church. The Holy Spirit is taking individual members of the church and He's building them into something. You know, and Paul sometimes uses the metaphor of a body. Sometimes Paul uses the metaphor of a temple. But what he's trying to get across is, is that there's these individual components that are being brought together, shaped and molded so that they can fit together as one whole. One whole. And that's the job 
of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's doing. And one thing that we learn from this is that as a Christian, you were never meant to exist in isolation. You're never meant to exist in isolation. It is so vitally important that you are connected with other Christians and that we're in each other, one another's lives, we're talking to one another, we're bearing one another's burdens and things along that line because of what God is doing here. Through the Holy Spirit, He's shaving off some of these rough edges and He's fitting us together and making us into a dwelling of God. So when we talk about the... Unity of the Spirit. We are talking about our common experience of the Spirit's life and our common experience of the Spirit's purpose as He molds us together and makes us into a whole. So that's what the unity of the Spirit is. Number two, why must we be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit? Why why is it important? Why is this important? Well, we know that it's important because of that word there, diligence. Be, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Here's what one commentator said about this word diligence. Paul's appeal is urgent and cannot be easily translated into English. The verb he uses has an element of haste, urgency, and even a sense of crisis about it. So why must we be at a crisis state about preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace right here at Lake Road? And I think the answer is this, because of what God is doing through the church. Because what God is doing through the church, if you remember our study from Wednesday night, we talked about Ephesians uh, 1 and some verses along there, and some of the verses that we talked about were 9 and 10, where Paul talks about that God's purpose in all of history is to sum up everything in Christ. That's what God's doing in history. If you want to know what all of these seemingly individual events and organizations and all of these things that are going on, if you want to know the hidden hand behind that, what is it working towards, what is, what is the goal of all of this, God is summing up everything in Christ. And here's the amazing thing. As the church, you have been given an incredible privilege What is that? Your role in this summing up of all things in Christ is to be the body of Christ. The body of Christ. That's what you get to be. There are all sorts of purposes and all sorts of things. Some things will show the justice of Christ. Some things will show the love of Christ. There's all kinds of things that are happening here. But you have been given the highest privilege of all. You get to be His body. His body. And so generally speaking for the Christian, your primary spot in history is to be a part of this spirit-empowered body where individual parts under the Lordship of Christ work together in perfect harmony. A spirit-empowered body where these individual parts have been molded and shaped and fitted together to work and exist and to live in perfect harmony, completely under the Lordship of Christ. And where God is headed with the church is to totally perfect that. 
to totally perfect that. Uh, flip back over to chapter 4. Paul talks about this some. Um, in verse 11 and 12, starting there, he talks about these ministers were given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. That's, that's what we're doing. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And down in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. So what is God doing in history? He's doing all sorts of things that are headed towards one purpose, the glory of God in the face of Christ. And as the church, you have been given the highest privilege imaginable. You are the body of Christ. And as we go along and as ministers equip and saints work, the body is being fitted and grown into the head so that one day at the end of time there will stand a redeemed humanity that lives in perfect harmony and in entire subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ as His body. As His body. So why must we be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit? Because the glory of Christ is at stake. The glory of Christ is at stake. And if you can get a hold of that, that helps a lot. Because it keeps stuff from getting personal. That's the problem. Stuff starts to get personal. But when you have your mind on the eternal purposes of God in Christ, it lifts you up from this little horizontal plane and all of these little problems down there, and it breathes new life into you to persevere through difficult situations. And that's why Paul starts with... I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Do you remember these first three chapters? Think of that. And the first place I want you to apply this is being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So number one, what is the unity of the Spirit? The unity of the Spirit is our common experience of the Spirit's life and purpose as He takes the parts and makes a whole. And second, why must we be diligent to preserve this unity? Because the glory of Christ is at stake. Number three, how is the unity of the Spirit preserved? How is this unity preserved? Let's read again verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. In love. Unity is preserved where love reigns. Unity is preserved where love reigns. And Paul has spoken about this all through this section. Look at verse 15 and 16. We've already read these, but we'll read them again. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects into Him. Do you hear that? The atmosphere that we grow up in is love. Verse 15, the end of verse 15 and into 16, Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the 
proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Love is what makes the body grow. And just going back to that metaphor of the temple that Paul used in Philippians, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, you know, where he describes us as bricks that are being built together by the Spirit into a dwelling of God. Going back to that illustration or that metaphor there, love is the mortar that holds those bricks together. Love is the mortar that's going to hold those bricks together. I don't know if you've ever worked with bricks and rock and things like that, but especially rock, you know, you've got these pieces that don't, you know, it's hard to get them to fit. But the way that you get them to stick together is you put a lot of mortar between there and that mortar, that mortar holds them. If you were to take that mortar away, the whole building falls apart. And the same is true of love. This place can lose a lot of stuff. We can lose all kinds of things. But if we lose love, we might as well shut the doors. We might as well shut the doors. Love is the greatest need that we have this morning. Love. How is this unity preserved? It is preserved through love. Or as Colossians chapter 3 says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The perfect bond of unity. Now, here's a question. How does love, in verse 2... Relate to peace in verse 3. Verse 2 says, Be humble, meek, and bear with one another in love. And then verse 3 says, Preserve the unity of the Spirit in peace. So how do love and peace relate to one another? And here's my answer. In this context, uh, in the discussion of church unity, the bond of peace is a situation where love has totally conquered self. The bond of peace is a situation. It's the atmosphere where love has totally conquered self. Is not self the problem with all disunity? All disunity can be traced back to one spot, self. And that's what James says in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says this, he says, What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? I mean, I like that. He just kind of, you know, you want to know the problem here. He says this, The source of your quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source of your, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. He says the problem is self, your pleasures, your bent on doing your own will. On the other hand, the greatest threat to self is love. And when spirit-empowered love conquers self, you have the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And Paul states that this unity will be preserved when love conquers self in three ways. Number one, through humility. Number two, through meekness. And number three, through patiently bearing with one another. Patiently bearing with one another. So how is the unity of the Spirit preserved? The first way that is preserved when love makes us consider um, others as more important than ourselves. That's the first way that unity will be preserved. When love makes us consider the person next to you and in front of you and behind you as more important than yourselves. That's what Philippians 2 says. 
in humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. All this unity stems from a violation of this verse. All true disunity stems from a violation of this verse, of not putting another, as more, considering them as more important than yourself. The reality of it is this, with every situation that confronts you, every situation, it doesn't matter where it comes from, doesn't matter who it comes from, you're going to have a choice. You're either going to respond from a loving humility, or you're going to respond from self. You either respond from self, or either you respond in humility. I'm going to put them first, or I'm going to put me first. So what does this look like in practice? Well, let me just give you a, a scenario. Let's say that I come in uh, for a couple of meetings, several meetings, whatever, and there's someone who, you know, doesn't smile at me, doesn't say hi, or just in some way, they aren't being toward me what I think they should be towards me. I have a choice. I can respond from one of two places. I can respond from self, or I could ask the question, what will do them the highest good in this situation? What will do them the highest good in this situation? And maybe I come to the conclusion that I should simply pass over the offense. Love does that. Love does that a lot. Love does that a lot. There's a uh, story told along these lines of D.E. Host. D.E. Host was the, uh, the leader of China Inland Mission after Hudson Taylor passed on the reins to him. He led a mission, he, so he led this missionary organization, and once there, is, uh, there was a co-worker who had really done wrong to him. I mean, the co-worker had really done wrong towards D.E. Host, and he forgave the offense. And later... Oh, down the road, this co-worker was talking to D.E. Host's wife uh, about this situation, and the co-worker said, you know, to his wife, he said, you know, I'm sure he told you about this. And she just shook her head and she said, no, this is the first I've heard of it. He hadn't told his wife. He had just covered over the offense. Love does that. As a matter of fact, it says, love covers over a multitude of sins, a multitude of of sins. So that's one thing. And if you go that route, you pray for them and treat them as if everything was normal. Everything was normal. Remember that love keeps no record of wrong. So in this situation where I have this going on and there's just, you know, something's not happening that I think should be happening. Someone is not being what I think they should be. Maybe the thing that I do is simply pass over the offense. Simply pass over the offense and I still treat them with love simply because, as I said, love keeps no record of wrongs. And I consider how might I do the most good to them in this situation. Well, maybe in asking that question, I decide something needs to be said. Something needs to be said. And again, it's not stemming from self. My concern here is their interest, not mine. Not mine. And maybe, you know, they've got something going on and I need to intervene. And so maybe I go to them and I say, you know, brother or sister, this seems to be what's happening. What's going on? You know, I actually had this a while back. Somebody came to me just as meek as a lamb and said, you know, are, are you offended with me? 
Now, I wasn't, but it helped me so much because I had a blind spot in my life that this person was able to point out. What caused that? It, it was caused by love. It was caused by love. And so maybe in some of these situations, love just passes over these offenses. And in other situations, you go to the person meekly and say, you know, here's the situation. Is something, is something the matter? Have I done something to offend you? I just don't want there to be a breach. Do you see what love does? That's the way that love responds. Now imagine another scenario. Someone doesn't say hi. Someone doesn't meet my expectations. Some, I mean, just any myriad of situations that call for this verse to bear upon the circumstance. So anything... Along those lines, and let's say instead of starting from loving humility and asking what would be the highest good for them, I start with myself. I start with myself. And so what do I do? I go around and talk to everyone about this situation except the people involved. And through that, discord and disunity just permeates through the church. And there's this undercurrent of bitterness that begins to grow up right below the surface. That's a response from self. Love doesn't do that sort of thing. Again, going back to D.E. Host, D.E. Host said this, and remember, he is, he is a leader of the godliest missionary organization, most certainly of that time. Listen to what he said. Looking back over these 50 years, I really think that if I were asked to mention one thing that has done more harm and occasioned more sorrow and division in God's work than anything else, I should say gossip. Looking back over 50 years, he said, you want to know what, you want to know what threatened this place the most? Is this undercurrent of talk. People either not passing over the situation and bearing with it and covering it as an offense or going directly to the person and saying, you know, here's what I think is going on. I don't want there to be a breach. What can we do together? Or possibly going to seek only, you know, counsel from a, a godly older man or woman, but not going around talking to everybody else about it. He said, if I had to say one thing that did more harm than anything else, it was that thing right there, going around and talking to everyone else about it. That's not what love does. And here's the reality of the case. You are never closer to being like the devil than when you are slandering another Christian. You're never closer to being like the devil than when you're slandering another Christian. The devil is a murderer, but his name is slanderer. That's what devil means. The word devil, diablos, means slanderer. And so to be a part of that, to be a part of that, is diabolical. It's diabolical. Love does not do that sort of thing. Love goes to the person and ask them, or love covers over the offense, or love seeks counsel from a godly person of, help me to approach this situation so that I can be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. But love does not go out and spread disunity. So, that's the first thing, how unity is preserved. Unity is preserved when we consider others as more important than ourselves when we start with them and their highest good but love just doesn't just stop at asking the question it goes on to action and 
Under the second heading here, B, unity is preserved when love makes us gentle or meek. Gentle or meek. If humility is the way that love thinks about another person, meekness is the way that love responds. Meekness is the way that love responds. And meekness is love's ability to treat people with Christ-likeness regardless of how they've treated us. That's what meekness is. Meekness is love's ability to treat people with Christ-likeness regardless of how they treated us. The story is told of Amy Carmichael and her nurse. And I don't know if you know much about Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary in India for a long time. And during the last you know, part of her stay, she was confined to a bed. And she had a helper that was in charge of taking care of her. And though Amy never spoke of it, everyone knew that this helper was subpar to say the least. I mean, often she wouldn't be kind to her. Often she wouldn't just do little courtesies and things like that. And one day someone asked Amy why she she would continue to put up with this. And here's what Amy said. She said, I thought perhaps I could be a help to her. (laughs) So she goes on living in this bed. She's confined to a bed and she has this person that's not taking good care of her. And her thought is... That person over there is interest. I, I wonder if I could do some kindness through her through this time. That's meekness. Only love can make you do something like that. That is totally foreign to the world. The world is, where is my nurse's button? Get the CEO in here. That's what the world says. And there may be a time for that in the Christian life, but that's not the first thing that you learn in the Christian life. The first thing that you learn is how to respond in meekness. Meekness. We, of course, have the clearest picture of this in the life of Christ. Sometimes love constrained him to make a whip. Sometimes love constrained him to wash his betrayer's feet. Other times love constrained him to look somebody in the eye and say, One thing you lack. Other times it constrained him to look someone in the eye and say, You're about to blow it, but I want you to know I'm not giving up on you. But the point is this. Christ always, Christ never responded from self. He always responded from love. Love controlled everything in his life. And again, what that does is it keeps things from getting personal. When everything gets personal and you're not full of love, that's when you start to make mistakes. I remember um, there was a professing Christian who had really gotten off into some serious error and I really felt like I need to go to this person and you know, show them the error that, that they're getting into here. And I went to seek some godly counsel more along the lines of help me craft my argument so that by the time this meeting's done, I've got a net I can just draw up and be done with the situation. And after I go through my, my logic and all the, you know, my arguments, uh, the person just shook, shook his head and he said, you know what, if you just make sure that before you go into that situation, you, are, you feel love for that person, you feel love. 90 percent of that situation is going to be taken care of, and you're going to say everything that's right. Well, that's a different way of looking at things. If you make sure, okay, here's this situation that's come come to bear. So, something's happened. Some um, expectations are not being met, or some this person's done something. I mean, there's just a host of of things that could be happening, and I make sure that in that situation, my love is is white hot. I 
feel love towards this person. I'm praying, God, bless this person and make me a blessing. Help, help me to be helpful in this situation. Help me to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If you do that, you'll do everything that's right. But if you act from a position of just getting put out, isn't that what happens a lot? You know, you're able to go along with these situations for a while, but afterwards you just get exhausted and you just get put out. And that, usually it's at that time is when you stop talking to that person and go start talking to everybody else about that person. We've got to guard against that thing. We've got to let love make us meek. Make us meek. So not only will we preserve the unity of the Spirit through humility of mind and through meekness of response, but lastly, unity is preserved when love makes us go on being humble and meek when times get hard. So not only are you meek once, but you go on being humble and you go on being meek as the days and years roll by, even if this situation doesn't turn the way that you think it ought. That's what love does. Now, I'm using this word bear, and that's what the ESV says, I think. I think it says bearing with one another in love. Uh, Showing tolerance for one another is a great translation. It's just I'm hung up on that word tolerance. When I hear the word tolerate, I think of what my parents made me do with my little sisters. That's a different thing, all right? That's a different thing because that's the kind of thing I'm gritting my teeth and I love you. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about love that is welling so much up inside of you for the people here that you are willing to go on bearing with some things even for a long time. Even for a long time. Um, But you know, I don't want to pull the teeth out of this. The very fact that Paul has to say this means that there are going to be some things to bear with. There are going to be things to bear with. I hope you did not come here thinking that you had finally found the perfect church and that you had finally found a place where there would no longer be any need to bear with absolutely anything. If you came here with that expectation, you're going to be sorely disappointed. I know I didn't come here with that expectation. I love this place. I moved, I pulled up my life and moved hundreds of miles just to be a part of this fellowship. But I wasn't so naive to know that there was nothing that was going to need to be born with if for no other reason than I was about to show up (laughs) and ruin the whole average. There is no perfect place. And there's a difference between a church that's just carnal and it's not even a church anymore and the lampstand has been taken away. And there's... There's a difference between that and a group of redeemed people that salvation has been started, but it's not yet finished. And there are cultural differences. And there are differences in expectations. And there are differences in personalities. There are all kinds of differences that require us to bear with one another in love. Bear with one another in love. And I think one of the most, one of the best illustrations uh, of this is from the life of, of John Newton. John Newton lived towards the late 1700s, maybe early 1800s also, and his relationship with William Cooper, I don't know if you know much about that story, but it, it is just incredible. William Cooper was a poet that suffered radically from depression. I mean radical, radical type depression. He tried to take his life on, on a few occasions. And he moved to Olney where John Newton was just to be 
with Newton and just to be under his care. And he came there just as weak as a dish rag and through hour upon hour upon hour of labor, Newton nursed him back to health. Now you're talking about a guy who has a lot A lot to do. I mean, John Newton was a busy man, but he took so much time and patiently bore with William Cooper through these times until he got him back up to the place to where Cooper could function some. Well, Cooper went on like that for a little while, and then he just took a nosedive. He took a nosedive, and it was at that time that he made his first attempt to take his life. Now, imagine you're John Newton. All right. You have spent hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, nursing this guy up to health. He finally gets there. No doubt John Newton was exhausted. Things look like they're going well, and then all of a sudden, Cooper just takes a nosedive. What would you do? What would you do? Well, let me read you some excerpts from John Newton's journal from around that time. Saturday, January 2nd, my time and thoughts much engrossed today with an affecting and critical dispensation at Orchard, Orchard Side. Translation, Newton had tried to take his life, and it was, it was a mess. It was a real mess. I was sent for early this morning and returned astonished and grieved. How mysterious are the ways of the Lord. January 3rd, sent for again this morning, an affecting scene. I was told the appearances were worth afterward. Tuesday, January 5th, I have now devoted myself and time as much as possible to attend William Cooper. Do you know how hard those situations are? Do you know how easy it would be just to say, I'm just done, you know, there's so much, I'm just, let's just cut the losses right here. Let's just cut the losses right here. But he didn't do that. We walk today and probably shall daily. I shall now have little leisure but for such things as indispensability require attention. I'm going to sacrifice for this. Wednesday, January 6th, much as yesterday, I have now to perform family worship morning and evening in two houses. The storm is heavy, talking about Cooper, but I can perceive that the Lord is present in it. Tuesday, January 12th, my post, uh, my post of observation was very painful last week, but now it is pleasing. The shade grows lighter every day. Saturday, our hopes of a speedy deliverance dampened today by the return of temptation. He's wanting to come, take his life again. One more. Friday, January the 22nd. My dear friend still walks in darkness. And, and, and Newton went on and on and on. You know, some people say that when Newton was old, when, when he was in Olney, where he lived, and he was most of the time, throughout the rest of their lives, there was not a period of seven hours where they were apart. And, and Newton talks about this path between their two houses that once they, they went, because they lived right next to each other, and once they went back and forth, and he says, now this is a one-way path. Week after week, after month after month, he's bearing with this difficult situation. Now let me ask you this. If Newton can go through that, can't we deal with some differences? Can't we bear up with some personality differences and, and uh, the host of other things that makes you just want to quit on a person? That makes you want to quit on a person and not press through that whole thing to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what love does. Love bears all things. 
And it never fails. It never fails. In closing, what is the unity of the Spirit? The unity of the Spirit is our common experience of the Spirit's life and purpose as He takes the parts and makes them into a whole. You are being built into a temple. You are being crafted into a body. Number two, why must this unity be preserved? Because God is glorifying Christ by fitting the church to its head. Why must it be preserved? For the glory of Christ. For the glory of Christ. And number three, how is this unity preserved? This unity is preserved when love reigns supreme in our thoughts and actions. When love reigns supreme in our thoughts and actions. And I would just exhort you, I would plead with you this morning, if there is this disunity... If there's any disunity there, if if there's something that a brother or a sister has done and you haven't been able to shake it, and maybe you have, maybe you've gone to talk to other people and you felt that tinge in your conscience, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. If that that situation is present, either pass over the offense or go to the person and say, "Here's, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm struggling with. How can we work at this thing together so that this unity will be maintained? Maintained. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful this morning that we're not left to ourselves. God, I have seen what I am capable of when I'm left to myself. But we're not, and we have the promises of God to help us. And we have the Spirit of God to empower us. And so, Lord, we ask that Your Holy Spirit would just come do a work among us this morning as would be pleasing to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.